everyone. This is Dr. Cheryl Selman, and welcome to The Love Code. It's great having you with me today because we're going to have another inspiring conversation, opening your mind, opening your heart, and letting you tap into the vast potential that exists within you. In fact, that's really what this program is all about. It's about combining ancient wisdom with the latest quantum field, quantum science, understanding of who we are, and then giving you some practical tools, strategies, techniques, formulas that you can apply in your life on a daily basis to help you return to who you are and 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 therefore access the ability to heal and transform any aspect of your life. And if you are very new to the show, because the show is just a, you know has has been birthed just a few weeks ago, and I'm thrilled to be able to be sharing this wonderful opportunity for enlightenment with you. Be, because I also have another show on PRN, and that is what women must know. So please go and check what women must know every week. Day, every Thursday at 4 p.m., that is. And if you would like to go to my website, which is drcherylselman.com, if you opt in there, then you will be sent both of my shows on a regular basis so you don't miss out at all. And I'm going to spell my name because it's a difficult one. It's D-R-S-H-E-R-R-I-L-L, Selman, S-E-L-L-M-A-N.com. So please opt in there, and I send out some great information in addition to sending those shows every week to your inbox. So hope you will join me there. You can always go to my Facebook page, which is What Women Must Know. I post all my shows there as well. So we have a fantastic guest with me today, and I know it will be an enlightening conversation. We are going to be exploring a prescription for Evolution, Revolution, and Global Awakening with my guest today, Monk Yun Ru. So just let me say a little bit about Monk Yun Ru, which means soft cloud in Chinese. Uh, He has been called the new Alan Watts, born Arthur Rosenfeld in New York City. He received his academic background at Yale, Cornell, and the University of California and was ordained a Taoist monk in China in 2012. Host of the hit national public television show Longevity Tai Chi, he is the author of more than 15 books, including award-winning novels, option for film in Hollywood and Asia. His articles have appeared in Vogue, Vanity Fair, Parade, Newsweek, The Wall Street Journal, WebMD, Fox Business News, and numerous other websites and newspapers. Monk Hyun Roo began his formal martial arts training in 1980 and has studied with some of China's top Tai Chi grandmasters. In 2011, he was named Tai Chi Master of the Year at the World Congress on Qigong and Traditional Chinese Medicine. So we have a great conversation in store, and it's my pleasure to welcome Monk Yun Ru to the show today. Hello and welcome. Who was that guy you were talking about? All those things. I those know. Don't you marvel? Don't you yeah. don't you marvel at your life? Uh, I, I like I said, I'm just uh, some little fellow with no hair on the other end of the phone. I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> well, well, I marvel at your life. If you don't marvel at your life, you have um, you, you've really you've really created a, a life where you have uh, expressed your creativity. You've you know you've 
and you've achieved so much in this journey in this lifetime. So uh, I, you know, I'm you know reading through your bio, and you know that's not all of it, but I don't have you know your whole bio would probably take up most of the show, so I had to condense it down. But you 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 really are doing extraordinary. Uh, things with your life, you are bringing extraordinary healing and wisdom into the world, and congratulations on your new book, which has just been released in uh, November, called Mad Monk Manifesto, A Prescription for Evolution, Revolution, and Global Awakening. So uh, let's just jump right into it, because I have been reading your book. I find it really lovely. I've enjoyed reading it. I've been inspired by this book. This is you know, it just resonates with me. I've been on my own personal spiritual journey for, dare I say, 50 years now. <laughs> so so it's um, it's always refreshing to be able to read inspiring information. So um, so let's start. Let's start at the very beginning. So I know you are a good Jewish boy. Are you still there? Yes, I'm hearing a lot of clicking. Oh, I'm right hearing here. clicking too. Yeah. Okay. Well, we'll mm. it's gone. So let's start from the very beginning. So, what was the what was the, the 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 flash moment when something changed in your life? I mean, you were raised in New York City, prominent Jewish family, Yale, Cornell. I mean, you know, great schools, obviously, great pedigree. What happened that made you change a life direction? So, you know, when we talk about awakening, there is this, um, what I think is a little bit of a pernicious fiction that uh, awakening means, you know, like one moment you're one thing and then the next moment you're another. There's an old Zen saw about this, which Alan Watts uh, interpreted from a a famous Zen teacher named Suzuki, which went, you know, before enlightenment chop wood and carry water. And Alan Watts said, you know, after enlightenment, chop wood and carry water just two inches above the ground. <laughs> and I don't think that there is such a moment, really. I, I think it's more like um, it's a progression. Uh, it's a journey. And our brain is a, primarily serves as a filter. And we are born with all kinds of filters in place, and they are there to allow us to function in the world because there is so much energy, so much information with which we are being bombarded at all times. Cosmic rays, you know, piercing us and running right through from one end of the earth to the other and popping out the other side, little Higgs bosons and and all these other things, noises and vibrations and radiation. So, you know, if if we were fully aware of all that's really going on, we would be, our brains would be overwhelmed and we might die, but we certainly wouldn't be able to function in any coherent way. So, you know, when when we wake up or when we progress uh, spiritually or in any, any other sort of metaphysical way, it is by dint of removing one of these filters after the other. And for most people, and certainly for me, that is a step-by-step process. It's not, you know, boom, all the filters come off and there you are, you know, naked in the sunshine. It's not not really like that. So I could say that, um, you know, I, I 
I was told a lot of things as a kid about the way the world worked that did not jive with what I actually saw happening. And one uh, example I've used is that my father was a very famous physician and people came from around the world to seek his counsel and his assistance. And as a result, I saw so many of the people who in those days were running the world. There were kings and presidents and, and, and ministers and captains of industry and, and Hollywood stars and moguls and so on. Um, and what I saw was that although they represented all that we were told we should all want to be, have, achieve in the world, that is, they had, they had power and wealth and fame and beauty and, and so on and so forth, they, they, for the most part, were not really so happy. And many of them were not particularly kind or developed people either in whatever that sense that, of that I had at, you know, 10 or 12 years old. And I saw them, you know, arguing with their kids and pushing their wives down the stairs and uh, going to jail for a crime here and there, tax evasion and whatnot. And, and I just began to wonder, hang on, hold on, if these people really represent what we're all supposed to be, and that really doesn't seem quite right to me. What other bills of goods have I been sold? And so I began at an early age to sort of question everything. You can imagine what a great joy I was to my parents. Um, but I just didn't, I didn't buy a lot of the things I was being taught about religion, about, about money, about happiness, about career, about society, economics, uh, culture, you know, anything. And I, I just began questing early. I guess I must have been born with that seeking gene. I was just thinking that, you know, you were born with a desire to to know a greater truth. And um and you pursued it. I I'm just curious when you went to Yale, what 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 did you think at that point your 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 profession was going to be did, did you have an idea of at that point what you thought your life was going to be about i very much objected uh, as i continue to object when it comes to education and when it comes to I, i've shared this point of view vociferously with my own son um i very much object to the idea that we ought to know what we want to do when we go to school I think that that idea is a pernicious one and that if we do that, we are certainly wasting the hundreds of thousands of dollars that it costs to get a liberal arts education. We certainly call into question the very notion of such an education. And this idea of deciding when you're 12 what you want to do and then, you know, proceeding apace through the world, gathering the tools you need to act on your 12-year-old's ambition is to me a sad and, and and wrong way to live. Um, uh, you know, there's no way, really, that one can have any idea what important things there are to do in the world and how they mesh with one's own inclinations and abilities at such a tender age. I know plenty of people who are still trying to figure this out in their 40s. So the idea that you would, you know, piss away a, uh, an educational opportunity like going to a great liberal arts school and taking, 
you know, offerings and so many different things and taking advantage of resources uh, of that nature is, is to me, uh, a bad idea. So, you know, I had, I had passions and interests when I entered Yale, uh, and some of them I still have. Uh, but a sense of career uh, really ought to develop more organically, I think, in life, and it certainly did for me. You know, it brings up such an interesting point to explore because in our culture, everything revolves around what you're going to be when you grow up, and everything revolves about getting an education for the purpose of developing skills as a career. The whole liberal arts concept is something that is not really valued right now in our culture very much. But the deeper the the deeper question that uh, you were questing for at a very early age is what's the deeper purpose and meaning? And we think about our culture, and you know, because I have been involved with various spiritual paths, and um, you know, I've lived in India, and I've I've worked with a variety of modalities in my journey. It it makes you um, have a much um, longer view. Of, of reality, of life, and also makes you question a, the greater purpose of who we are and why we're here, which seems to really have gotten lost in our 200 or so year old history in this country. We don't really have a long view. We don't even have access to a culture that has a long, long view delving into the deeper meaning of of our purpose in being here. So, yes, there was a lot there. And um, some of the things that you referred to at the outset of what you just said made me squirm uh, so uncomfortably that, that they reminded me of the reason why I wrote Mad Monk Manifesto in the first place. So first, let's get to the idea that, you know, liberal arts are uh, not much valued. Um, the reason why liberal arts education is not much valued now and that uh, that we are all enslaved by tech devices and digital media and the incessant drum of news feeds and so on is that it is in the interest of the people who are now running the world who want various sorts of capital from us, whether that is our attention because we have this thing called the attention economy where our eyeball time on things is sold uh, as a commodity, uh, or um, it's our physical uh, uh, work, you know, manual labor, or uh, the time we spend at our desks, or, of course, our own checkbook. So these things are uh, fought over, these assets and resources that we each have. They are fought over by people who do not have our best interests at heart. They are people who have their own agendas. And the one thing they do not want us to do is to think deeply about anything. So if we think deeply, we begin to do what you and I are doing now, which is to discuss and question and wonder about the order of things and whether it is natural or unnatural, and whose agenda we are actually serving. So the idea that, you know, a liberal arts education is not much valued in the current culture, first of all, I don't think we have a culture. Um, we have sort of an anti-culture. 
uh, America has become, and maybe it always was. I, I don't, I don't know for sure about that because I'm not a sufficiently well-versed student of American history. But certainly, it has become a marketplace more than a nation. There are many, many different Americas, and each of them resembles sort of a, a shop in a shopping mall. Everything is about, you know, you go into the mall and you pick what you want. But as far as being a nature, a nation of ideals or ideas, that may or may not have been true at the outset, but it certainly isn't true now. And so, you know, what we have is this mad frenzy of materialism. So, of course, you know, if, if we're talking about liberal arts education or spiritual questing or looking to see what needs to be done in the world and what kind of a life you can have meeting those needs using your assets and your personality and your passions to their best degree, then none of those things are supportive of this system and the system is sort of set up to work against them. So, you know, uh, in, in my book, you know, I trace the consequences of making personal changes and I liken the uh, process to dropping a stone into the water and watching the ever-widening circles of ripples radiate from the point of impact. So when we make little changes in ourselves, we become vegan or we, we sort of stop spending or we uh, start meditation uh, or myriad other things uh, that I recommend we do in the book. Um, the effects uh, move outward first towards the people who are closest to us, and then, you know, towards a little bit larger community. And, you know, they continue on out until eventually uh, they are absorbed into the world of sentient beings. And, you know, seeing things this way makes you wonder why people say, you know, what you are going to become instead of who you are going to become and say, what do you do, instead of asking, who are you? And these are things that, in my view, really need to change. So I'm going to take that from there and go a little further. Why do you think it needs to change? So the first answer is that it is not all about us. Uh, this is a difficult pill for all of us to swallow because we're in an all-about-me culture, anti-culture. But it isn't, in fact, all about us. And it's not, all, it's not even all about human beings. We could see the earth, and, and Taoists uh, like me do see the earth, as a much larger and coherent system of which human beings are a small part. And in much the same way, or in, I guess in an analogous way, to the way deep ecologists see the Earth as a superorganism, uh, that means that all the living things on Earth are working together as the system, and it is the planet that is the organism. This is a quasi-Taoist approach. It's not exactly a Taoist one, because the Taoist one looks at an even larger uh, landscape. But we, we could just pause at this one for a moment to wrap our minds around that idea. And, and if we see the whole Earth as this system which is balanced between opposing forces of yin and yang, male and female, light and dark, uh, uh, 
resources and depletion, you know, abundance and, and penury and so on, we can begin to see that the human race behaves very much like a cancer. That doesn't mean that individual people are cancers. And sometimes people balk when I use this language because it's so ugly and I get that. But I'm, I'm not saying that human beings are cancers. What I'm saying is that the way we behave toward the organism that is our home, that is part of us and of which we are a part, is out of control in terms of our overpopulation, the way we are physically destroying the world, the way we are causing the sixth great extinction in the history of the earth by killing off so many other living species, the way we are generating poisons that are running into our air and water and land. These are all symptoms that resemble very much the way a tumor grows in the human body. It too outcompetes other cells. It too produces poisons. It too uh, grows in an unchecked fashion. So when you ask me, you know, why we need to change, the answer is that we need to bring things back into balance for the survival of the superorganism we call Earth and for our own survival too. Well, that's a very important mission that we have. You know, we're, we're, um, we've taken our technology, we've used our brilliant minds, in my opinion, this is my opinion, we've used our brilliant minds to, to create, which is part of what it is to, um, to, to really be a human being. We have access to amazing creative energies. And so, so, well, in our culture, in our culture, I would say that it has focused on using that brilliant creative mind to create more and more powerful, destructive things. You know, I have a I have a calendar here that is a calendar that I was given as a gift, and it's the uh, Wayne Dyer, Change Your Thoughts, Change Your Life. Oh, no, I think it's... That's who wrote it, but it's a, it's about his time with the Tao, with the Tao uh, Te Ching. And, and here's December 21st. This is what I'm reading today. In this world, the more advanced the weapons of state, the darker the nation. It's a really interesting thought. So, right. So, you know, the Tao Te Ching is, um, some, some sources say that it is the second most widely translated book in the world after the Judeo-Christian Bible. And certainly it is a fount of inspirational wisdom for me and millions of other people. It is far from the only book in the Taoist canon, but it is certainly the most well-known and in some ways the most delicious. There are others that I also enjoy greatly that I think are at least as good, but it is certainly you know the most widely known. And in that same book, there is a chapter about leadership and it describes the worst leader as the one everybody fears. It describes a better leader as one everyone hates. It describes a bit better leader than that, one who people don't really know very well and are ambivalent about. And a better leader than that is the absolute best 
and that is the leader that no one knows is there. So rather than the frenzy of narcissism and self-adulation that we see these days in leadership uh, in many positions in our country, the Taoist view is that the best leader is someone whose hand is so light on the tiller of our ship as it sails through the sea of life that we don't even know anyone is steering. And we think that it is just the good wind that has come up that is in our favor. And we think that it is just the solid construction of the hull and our own great characters and our own good efforts that are making our life and our country run so well. And that infrastructure is just supporting us all because, well, you know, it was built that way and, uh, we all just contribute to it. And nobody even knows that, in fact, there is someone very carefully adjusting course on a moment-to-moment basis to make sure we sail straight ahead. So this is a very different view of leadership from the view that we currently enjoy in our anti-culture. Do you know anyone anywhere, whether it's business, whether it's a country now or any time in the past that has ever had such a leader? So the Tao Te Ching, just like Mad Monk Manifesto, which is just my own application of Taoist philosophy to many layers of the experience of life in our world, is a utopian document. It is a prescription which we can choose to follow, but the choice is up to us. I think there have probably been many, many great leaders who have followed this advice, but it is a logical consequence of the description that I just gave you that we don't know who they are. If we knew them and we knew their names, they would not be the leader I've just described. So, this, this sort of leads me to this concept of, of door number three, which you and I talked about for a moment before we began our chat on air. Um, so I just want to share a, a short story about this that will help to illustrate the concept. Uh, years ago, I was in line in Starbucks in the drive-thru to get a cup of tea. And when I'd done ordering my tea, I, I recognized the order taker, uh, as a young lady from uh, Britain, and I just recognized her by her voice. And um, I ordered my tea, and I couldn't move up in the line because there were cars in front of me. But the fellow behind me, you know, laid on his horn and leaned out his window and yelled, you know, move up, you idiot. Um, and, and, I, and, I, and there was nowhere for me to go because it was maybe three or four inches between my bumper and the car in front of me. And and after he did that, because I am such a great and enlightened master, my first thought was, I'm going to jump out of the car and send this guy to the hospital. Uh, How about that? It was right before Christmas. I think I'm going to send him for a holiday visit to the dentist. And so I begin to open my door. And as I open my door, I look in the rearview mirror, the side mirror, and I see his face, which is sort of florid and, and agitated. And I see my own expression in the mirror. And I look just like him. And I have this moment where I think, wow, look at this. 
whatever he's got, it has communicated itself to me. I've, I've caught, I've caught that disease. And when I had this epiphany, I, I closed the door and I, I didn't get out. And when I got up to the window to pay, I said, uh, you know, she said it'll be a dollar eighty-five or whatever for your tea. And I said, actually, I'd, I'd like to buy the coffee for the guy behind me. And she said, what? But, but he's an arse. I've heard, I've heard all that he's yelling and all that from the speaker. And I said, yeah, well, you know, you don't know. Maybe he just found out that his wife has cancer or he lost his job or his, his kid is sick. or I mean, you know, who knows what's going on in his life. And, uh, you know, let's just buy him his coffee and I'll be on my way. And she said, but the problem is he's, 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 he's not buying coffee. He's buying breakfast for his whole office and it's, uh, you know, this obscene amount of money. And I looked in my wallet and it's just so often sadly the case there's a loan $10 bill in there. And I think, oh, boy, I wasn't really thinking of that. But, you know, I give her my credit card. I say, here, do it. She says, what? I say, yes, 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 do it. Do it quickly before I change my mind. <laughs> and, and, and and so, you know, I, I do it. And she says, you're sure? You're sure? I said, just do it. And then I, I, I do it and I drive away and I'm in a blissful state. I have recovered my equilibrium. I'm not angry about this guy. I'm not thinking about myself. I just get on with my day. And five or six hours later when I come home, I find that my message is uh, I have uh, – a long, long, endless string of voicemails, and I start listening to them. And they're at first from the Starbucks asking me to please call them. And, um, and I'm, you know, being, as you pointed out, a Jewish boy from New York, my first thought is that the credit card wasn't good. <laughs> I, I know I know it was. And, um, uh, and then there's more messages from, from the Starbucks manager and on and on. And then, Unbelievably, there's a message from a, a news reporter. I can't remember if it was NBC or CBS. Uh, a news reporter looking to talk to me. And this news reporter leaves quite a few messages. And as I'm going incredulously through this string of messages, my phone rings and it's the reporter. And he says, oh, good, I got you. I'm going to come to your house. I said, what? What, what is this all about? He says, well, you're the one who was in Starbucks. And I said, oh, my God. Is this a holiday story about philanthropy? Because if it is, you know, you need to call Bill Gates. There's nothing here. There's no story. Go away. You're not coming to my house. He says, no, no. But what you don't understand is that you, what you did was at 8.30 this morning, and, and it's 3 o'clock in the afternoon now, and, and it's still going on. And I said, what's still going on? He said, well, when you paid for him, he paid for the person behind them. And then behind them, and they had them, and they've been doing this in the string of this pay forward thing. I guess I was the one that started that crazy thing with the movie and all that. Pay it, but it doesn't make sense because it's paid backward. But anyway, uh, so so um, he, I met him at the Starbucks. I didn't want him to come to my house. And I explained to him about this, this concept, which relates not only to the ripples in the pond that I talked about earlier, but to your question about leadership. I said, look, we have three choices. Door number one, he honks. I get out, and I bust him in the face with my fist. Force against force. Door number two, I get out, and, and I go to his window, and I say, you're right, I'm an idiot. Let me see if I can spit shine your windshield for you and clean your hubcaps with my elbow. Is there anything else I can do for you, Your Highness? And that, one, that door is yielding, right? and neither one of those two doors is an acceptable way to go through life. So door number three is defined by being a unique and creative solution to every situation of conflict, which is simply not 
door number one and not door number two. And it might be different for every in every case. And in my case, what would make me restore my monk's equilibrium, my cool dude feeling, was just, just to buy him coffee and be done with it, completely out of the blue thing. And so, you know, our challenge in life is often to find our door number three. And it does take some training and discipline and experience and, you know, maybe some inspiration to get into the mode of always looking for door number three. But I think it's a pretty good prescription. And and not only did door number three create a creative solution to an issue, but it had far-reaching ramifications. Yes, and that was the time when I began to think differently about ego and effort, which is something we talked about a little bit when we started, and about how we can be in the world and advance our way of looking at things without making it all about us. And sometimes leading by example and leading by service is a more enduringly effective way of getting higher ideas across than trumpeting your own stuff. So it leads me to the thought that so much of our culture is reactive. We're reacting because we're, we're, we, we haven't trained our emotions. We haven't trained our thinking processes. So we're reacting. And that's resulting in tremendous amount of stress. That's such a big topic these days. I mean, everything is now acknowledged as created from stress, whether it's health issues, whether it's uh, you know financial challenges, relationship challenges, just every, everything is disrupted when we live in a stressful state. And I guess if there is no other reason for people to be open and curious to the kinds of things that we're talking about today, what the show is about, is because it is an antidote to living a stressful life if you choose to apply what you, people have an opportunity to learn, and it, it goes back to also the need for discipline in one's life if you want to change anything. Do, do you want to share some of your thoughts about that? So I agree with what you said, and I think there's two pieces to it. One piece is our self-cultivation. But earlier in our talk, you asked me why we need to change the world. And the answer is this. If if there is a car horn or a car alarm going out outside your window at 5.32 every morning, and it wakes you from a sound sleep in the last you know hour that you have to sleep, maybe you're in REM sleep and you're having a delicious dream, and every morning that bloody thing goes off and wakes you up. You know, there are two things that need to be done, not just one. Neither one is enough but two things, yin and yang. One, you have to better insulate your window and wear a pair of earplugs and go to bed a little bit earlier so that you can rise a little bit earlier to accommodate 
the reality of your environment. And two, you need to get whoever is the owner of that car uh, with the program and get them to fix their car alarm. So, you know, we need to do both the internal work and the external work. And the, the Mad Monk Manifesto links those two uh, areas of effort together in a uh, continuum and says that changing the internal work will eventually resolve the external problem. So when you ask me why we need to do this work, I cited the disastrous trajectory of humankind and our planet at the moment and how necessary it is to alter that trajectory. But in Mad Monk Manifesto, I, I point out that, you know, getting your neighbor to turn off or attend to the car alarm problem is a problem in itself. And it's something like the guy who was honking behind me at Starbucks. And the best way is not to go, you know, outside with, with your 44 Magnum and when you see him come to his car, blow his head off. That, that's not the best solution. Nor is the best solution, you know, just to leave him a little note on the windshield that says, you're waking people in the morning, please fix your alarm. Something in the middle has to happen. And in this case, it might be that you, you actually try to develop a relationship with this person once you've determined who it is and help them see why it matters that they're waking the whole neighborhood. So, but you're only able to do that kind of work. And that's only one example of what might be a good solution to that problem. You're only able to do that kind of work. You're only able to quiet your beating heart after it's been yanked out of a dream. If you are doing this self-cultivation and internal work too, what I call rectifying. So, so this, this, the idea that we separate ourselves from the external world is itself a problem. There is no such separation. We don't need to save nature. Nature is us. Nature is all through us, and we are all through it. If nature dies, we die, because we are one and the same thing. Anything in our, in our current anti-culture that leads us to feel a sense of isolation, anxiety, depression, angst, uh, make us long for validation and fulfillment and meaning, these things are all illusions based on the separation that we are feeling in our culture right now, one from the other and from all sentient beings on the planet. And we have to repair that illusion of separation because we are all the same and we are all one thing. And when we begin to repair that, then the suffering that so many people feel, the desperation in their lives, the alienation that leads young men to prefer video games to real life and work and, and family and all that, all those things will start to fall away. But we have to address the underlying causes of these of this suffering before it will, it will leave us. Do you think there is more of an impulse in our culture now to reevaluate our values, to bring in meditation, to bring in things like Tai Chi, to have more of a spiritual orientation in life because we've arrived at a place where, you know, we've achieved a certain amount of materialistic, you know, 
well-being, for lack of a better word, but but there's something more that's driving people. There's still an emptiness if people haven't really made a connection with the greater sense of who they are and their place in the world. So when I said earlier that our country is like a mall and there are, it's full of different stores, in one store we have privileged people who are upper middle class or upper class who have enough material security and enough education to begin to ask this kind of question. But in other stores in our country, in other strata of our society, we have people who are starving, people who are uh, jobless, people who are in agony, people who are gnashing their teeth in frustration with their lives every day. And so whether we see a little bit of a turn towards more spiritual living um, because some of us have gained enough stability to allow ourselves that, or whether what you're describing is a function of flat-out need, that it's, it's, it's a result of so much suffering that people are looking for any kind of answer. I, I suppose those are two different stores in the mall. And and they're both equally valid, and there are probably more reasons. Other stores in other strata and, and cohorts and villages of our, of our mall that we haven't mentioned. But do I think that I'm seeing this as a as a theme that is pervading the mall? Um, it's not pervading the mall yet, but I am seeing it pop up in more and more places, and I think. That it, I, I thank you for asking about it and pointing it out because I think that it is, in fact, the answer that is required for our own evolution. If we don't embrace it, we will not make it. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. Yeah. We're at a tipping point, and so many people are saying that from so many different directions, and it's a fact. We are at a tipping point. If we don't, if we don't uh, wake up to um, uh, to what we're doing to ourselves, we're doing to our planet, which, as you said, so rightly so, we're all connected, and we need to find a way to wake up. So let's talk about some of the strategies, techniques, the the ways that you are talking about people can start incorporating into their lives to help people reconnect with themselves, or you know, I like to say, wake up. So one way in which Taoist philosophy is very clear and different from many others is that we see what, we, what we're talking about here as awakening or uncovering or um, enlightening as a function of a healthy, properly functioning brain. In other words, long before there was, you know, the analyses and names of neurotransmitters and the attribution of certain mental states to certain chemicals, there were Taoist scientists who said, look, states of mind are malleable and achievable, and they depend on our body. We cannot have a healthy mind unless we have a strong body. So Taoist training begins with physical health. We have to have good physical health in order to support the ambitions we may have in, in our spiritual growth uh, and using uh, 
uh, qigong and and meditation and so on. So you know, I, I say in the book that that sitting is the new smoking. Uh, we have to get rid of our sol- our sedentary lifestyles. We have to alter them, either by taking jobs that have us move our body, or by figuring out ways to get up from the computer if we're in an office cubicle somewhere and move around, but not once every two hours. We need to do that every 15 or 20 minutes. We need to have standing desks. We need cycling desks. We need to have ways of using our body. We have to take more frequent breaks, and we have to counter the ill effects of the sedentary job we may have with a lot of exercise. And for people who say, well, this is all very nice, but you know, how do you find time to do all of that. It's all I can do to, you know, get my kid fed enough. And and my answer to that is five hours is the average amount of time Americans spend watching television each night. So if our lives were really, really that stressed and busy from moment to moment and exhausting with, you know, four different jobs and all that, then I doubt very much that we would all find time to watch television like that. Now, I get that it's an average and I'm not disrespecting the people who are, in fact, struggling to make ends meet. But if we are struggling that way, then we need to look at why are we struggling that way. In other words, what are we seeking the money for? If it's to put a roof over our heads or pay our health bills or educate our children, that's one thing. But if it's to get a better car or a bigger house or a big screen TV, in other words, to stress ourselves by chasing things we don't need and buy it buy those things with money we don't have. In other words, if we're buying into the cultural messages that we're receiving and just believing those things, if we're sitting watching the tube instead of going for a walk or a run or a swim or a hike or a Tai Chi practice or a yoga class, then then you know we're making mistakes that we can correct right now. And my book is full of this kind of advice and thinking. So that has to do with creating a strong body, which is true. If you don't have a strong, healthy body and you're dealing with fatigue or you're dealing with pain, it's really hard to focus on other things in your life. You know, you're you're, you're just so obsessed with what's going on and the challenges you have physically. So I, I really understand that for myself. I understand that in my practice that I, I do with people. It's like we have to understand the body is our servant. We need to take care of it. We need to honor it. It is housing our spirit. We need to love it. And then what? Okay, then what? What's the next step? Let's talk about meditation. So, so the next step, and of course, Taoists don't, by the way, make the make that conclusion that the body is our house or spirit. They say the body is us. Um, so, you know, if there, there was a there was this um, wonderful medical exhibit that ran around the country some years ago called the body, and I remember going to it and seeing how our nervous system is not just our brain, but extends all the way down into the ends of our toes and our fingers, and and, and it's, it's a very different uh, model of you know who we are neurologically, who we are as brains, as beings uh, than most people uh, credit. But to, to your to your question, the next step uh, after that is to embrace a way of looking at the world that reframes our assumptions and assessments. So I gave the, the idea of TV 
as a concrete example, not only of a better way to spend your time physically than sitting and watching it, but also uh, it's time to start reading and less watching. We want to de redevelop the concentration skills that we have all lost. We want to re begin to recognize that an active attention span is being taken away by the immediate gratification environment with its clicks and hyperlinks and uh, alert sounds and all that stuff, all of which get right in the way of uh, any kind of the deep thinking that I alluded to earlier. Once the deep thinking starts, then you have an opportunity to build for yourself a better set of values and references to use to guide your decisions and your life. And again, Mad Monk Manifesto offers some of these concretely, but there are all kinds of wisdom traditions out there uh, that provide this. All we have to do is, is access them. So I want to go back to that statement you made in Taoism. There, you're not, the body isn't the temple for the spirit. It is the totality of of what is, and uh, I, 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 I may be saying that all wrong. Can you just elaborate on that a little bit? <laughs> yeah, sure. So um, Taoism is primarily, at, at least the, the the part of Taoism that's relevant to this conversation um, is more of a philosophy than it is a religion. We don't, and this, that, that, by the way, is a whole subject that we could spend many hours talking about because Taoism itself is very porous and it involves uh, community and culture and history and, uh, and shamanism and uh, Neolithic uh, practices and all kinds of other things that we don't sadly have time for today. But I, I will say that we don't, Taoists don't profess to know what happens after we die. And we're not big on preaching about going to heaven or going to hell. We don't discredit any of that stuff. We don't discredit the possibility of reincarnation. We we just shrug our shoulders and say, look, we, we don't know about any of that stuff. What we know about is what we have right now. And there is enough in nature for the capital N and in our own nature with the small n that is more than enough to satisfy and occupy our ambitions as far as developing our awareness and our sensitivity. And we don't need to create um, metaphors like soul or spirit or anything. We, we just go with um, who we are and what we can develop ourselves into using specific techniques and practices and moving energy in very specific ways. That's a big part of, of Taoist practices. Taoism is a very practical philosophy in all senses of that word. So one way we look at things is that we are primarily aimed at enacting our three and protecting our three treasures. And those are compassion, frugality, and humility. But we don't necessarily need to attach those qualities to supernatural ideas or beliefs. You could just say, just for the sake of those three, that's enough, and let's dedicate ourselves to those three. Because if we just could cultivate those three, 
it would bring such a transformation for our own personal lives and then it would extend out into the greater community of compassion, frugality, and humility. Exactly. And it's so simple and so powerful, and yet so few of us do it. Mm. So are you teaching Tai Chi now? <laughs> I'm closing in. I'm, I'm, I'm painfully aware of the fact that I'm closing in rapidly on 40 years of uh, practice. I, I teach. I have, you know, I guess if you add them all up, thousands of students around the world in different continents and places. I have a good sized group here in South Florida where I live. Uh, I, I met, you mentioned a television show early in the show. I had nearly 200 million people tune into that show at one time or another in the three years that it ran. Um, I wrote a book about Tai Chi. But, you know, the most important thing is I, I don't really say that I have a Tai Chi school. Even though my practice is very hardcore and we embrace traditional Chinese weapons and we, we practice halberds and spears and swords and all kinds of things that are very exotic and great fun and very uh, wonderful for our health. But I, but I say that I have a philosophy school and it has a major in Tai Chi as opposed to having a Tai Chi school that pays some lip service to philosophy because as a Taoist monk, I see everything that I do as an expression of these principles and ideals. And the Tai Chi part is that part which helps us appreciate the principles of Taoism about harmony and balance and being like water and using no force against force, helping us to find, as we talked about earlier, door number three. <laughs> well, all I can say is I wished I lived in South Florida. <laughs> I would love Very to kind come of you to your school. It's true. It's true. It's true. But because I don't and because most of us do not live in South Florida, uh, I, I invite people to go to your website. So uh, can you tell us the best website for people? to learn more about sure. you, to pick up the book, Mad Monk Manifesto, A Prescription for Evolution, a Revolution, and Global Awakening. And I really recommend it. It's very thought-promoting, thought thought-evoking. I think that it will give people a lot to ponder in a good way. <laughs> so I highly recommend Mad Monk Manifesto, which I've been thoroughly enjoying reading myself. So let's get your website. So thank you for those kind comments. The book can be found on Amazon or other web, uh, web sellers and also at your local bookstore. If they don't have it, they can order it like every other book. Uh, the website is monkyunro.com. So www.mon as in Nancy, K-Y-U-N as in Nancy again, R-O-U, monkyunro.com. And there are places there, uh, contact information and so on. If People who are listening want to have me for a workshop or a seminar. Uh, I do those two all around the world. And uh, also information about my classes if they happen to be local and about my 15 other books uh, and new ones coming out all the time. Well, you're very creative and productive. It's wonderful because I think you have such an inspirational message. So I want to thank you for spending time with us today 
and I want to wish you all the best with your uh, new book, The Mad Monk Manifesto. And uh, it was a delightful conversation. Thank you so much for being with us, Monk Yun Ro. Thank you so much. Thank you for the honor of having me on. I appreciate your interest in my work. Absolutely. So to all of you listening, thank you for joining me today on The Love Code. I'm here every Thursday at 6 p.m. Eastern Time. And remember to fill your day with love, peace, and harmony. Talk to you soon. Bye for now.